0: The book of 2 Kings, chapter 2, 2 Kings, chapter 2, as we continue our series called The Lord God of Elijah. Our focus tonight, however, is not on Elijah. It's on Elisha and the Lord God of Elijah. Chapter 2, we begin our reading in verse number 15. And when the sons of the prophets which were to view at Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master, lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not sin. When they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, "Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and they sought three days, but found him not when they came again to him, for they tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? And the men of the city said unto Elisha, Behold, I pray thee, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord seeth, but the water is not, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new cruise, and put salt therein. And they brought it to him. And he went forth into the spring of the waters, and cast the salt in there, and said, Thus saith the Lord, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from thence any more death or barren land. So the waters were healed unto this day, according to the saying of Elisha, which he spake. As we come to this section of Scripture, we see the end of one ministry and the beginning of another. Elijah is gone, and Elisha steps on the scene. That ought to remind us that God's workmen die, but God's work goes on. Nobody is indispensable. When God is finished with one tool, He picks up another, and His work continues on. And it's been that way down through the centuries. So many times churches have faced the situation maybe of having a pastor that was a very famous, very gifted man at the helm, and suddenly he would die, or maybe he would move on, and everybody wondered, what in the world are we going to do now? kind of reminds me of the story, a situation like that, and the preacher got up and announced his resignation, and and uh, the little old lady came up to him afterwards and said, Well, we're just are so sorry. We hate to see you go. And uh, and he said, Well, don't worry about it. The Lord will send somebody better. And she said, Huh. said, Well, that's what they said the last time, and it didn't work. <laughs> 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 but now... <laughs> Nevertheless, the work goes on, because the work depends on God, not man. Let me ask this question. How many of you remember the first assignment on a new job somewhere? Boy, I do. I can remember years ago when I went to work for the State Highway Department in Missouri, and I'll never forget it. The resident engineer on the job was a man by the name of Eddie Edwards, and Eddie took me out to the job, and we had uh, we had the the field office there, and we was up on the grade, and they were working away, of course. And he just stopped the car in the middle of the grade, and uh, he said, uh, "Let's just stop and talk a little while before we get to the office." And we talked about some things, but he said. He said, I I want to tell you right now the most important thing about this job, and that is that if you don't know something, now listen, when you're working with the highway department and you're out there and the contractor's busy building the highway, they're naturally going to come to you when there's a question. But he said, don't ever pretend like you know something you don't you don't know the answer, then you go to somebody and you find the answer, but don't ever just pretend that you know the answer. That can really be a costly proposition for a contractor. First assignments. Kind of scary, right? You're usually nervous. You're usually uptight. You want to do a good job. Well, this is Elisha's first assignment here tonight. And here we see that, and think about it, he's about to step in the shoes of Elijah. Those are some big shoes to fill. Can you imagine being the replacement for Elijah, that he's gone? And now you're the man, you're on the spot. How in the world do you follow a man like Elijah? Well, let me give you some advice. And this advice is good especially for any young preacher. Be yourself. Don't ever pretend to be something you're not. Amen. I pastored in Springfield, Missouri, where I was born and raised. And naturally, that's the home of Baptist Bible College. So we we had a number of Bible stu- college students there in the church, and several of them members, but all the time, some coming through, And it's really amazing to watch young preachers as they try to emulate their preacher heroes. And I mean, after you've been in the ministry for a while, you can tell who they've been listening to and who they admire because they try to mimic their gestures and the fluctuation of their voice and on and on and on and, and try to sound just like them. And what they do is end up making a fool out of themselves. You just be yourself. You see, God created each and every one of us in a unique way. You're different than everybody else in this room. And it might be that you're a Sunday school teacher. It might be that you sing in the choir. It might be that whatever it is, you've got to be you. And so, Elisha is not coming out there trying to mimic the ministry of Elijah. That's not it at all. He is simply doing what he does best, and that is what? Following the leadership of the Lord. I mean, here is a, here is a young man straight from the farm that become the servant of Elijah, and now he is the successor to Elijah. And he's depending upon God to open doors. He's not trying to kick the doors down. He's not out there on the street corner somewhere saying, you know, look at me. I'm the great Elisha. I want you to watch me work a few miracles. Uh, Do you notice the natural course of this? He's not out there looking for some, some opportunity to toot his horn. He's just in the natural course of things, difficulties arise, and he's put in a situation where God uses him. Are you with me? You see, a lot of times we get really artificial in our Christianity. We got a program for this and a program for that, and everything is so programmed that after a while we develop this professional mentality. I talked this morning about us striving for excellence and working to do our best and to give our best and to do what is best for the Lord. And all of that is important, but it never means that we're trying to mimic the Hollywood crowd or the professional crowd out there. It doesn't mean that at all. So we don't try to run the church like a five-star eating place somewhere in the sense that we are seeker-friendly. We just try to be us and follow what God would have us to do. Now, notice what happens here, and here's something you need to remember, and that is whenever you commit to serving God, mark it down. It won't be long before you have an opportunity to prove yourself. He said to Elijah, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And last week, we looked at those four crossroads. Right in the beginning, Elijah said, well, you stay here. He I haven't done anything. You stay here. And he's putting him to the test. And in each instance, he's determined that he's going to continue following the Lord. Here is a man who is committed. And when you're committed, mark it down, God's going to put you to the test. He's going to see if you really mean business or not. You come forward at the end of the invitation and you you commit yourself that I'm rededicating my life. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Let me tell you what God's going to do. God's going to put you to the test. You say, well, I'm going to start witnessing more. God's going to put you to the test. That's what happened. Now, I want you to notice the problem, first of all. Now, remember, it had gone three and a half years without rain, but since then, it has rained. But problems still existed. Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. Sometimes we can do some things that we can't undo. Sometimes, even though God forgives us of our sin, there are some lingering after effects of the sin. Are you with me? In other words, you can go down here in a bar room, get in a bar room fight, and some guy cuts you all up with a knife. The Lord can forgive you for being there, and He can heal you of your wounds, but you've still got scars. And when we sin, a lot of times... We don't understand it later on. Well, I sinned. I asked God to forgive me. Now look at these problems I've got. There are some lingering effects. And that's what we see. There is evidently an abundance of water, at least in surrounding area. Notice in verse 19, he says things there at Jericho looked pleasant. But as good as it looked, notice what he says here. He describes it, verse 19, the water is not. That means it's bad. It's unfit for consumption. Now, folks, that's a serious problem. When you don't have good drinking water, you're in trouble. Water, physically speaking, is the most important thing in the world. You can't survive without water. Bev just got back from a cruise, and she was telling us there in Egypt, in different places, and they get off and they go out on one of the tours, and they tell them, "Don't drink the water. Don't eat the fruit off the vegetable stands. Take bottled water with you. The quality of the water is extremely important." And here they have water, but notice the water is unfit for consumption. So they need something that they can't do without. Now, it might be that your problem tonight has nothing to do with water. But you have a problem that involves something that you cannot do without. That's certainly true if you're unsaved. you got a big problem. You can't do without what the Lord has to offer But it's also true of every child of God. You see, as we look at this, it shows us just how helpless, just how dependent we are upon God. And we ought to never forget that, folks. A simple thing like water. I mean, nobody's talking about silver and gold and diamonds and pearls. It's water. Helpless without water. I don't think we understand how helpless we really are. Don't ever brag about being a self-made man. I mean, that's nothing to brag about, I'm telling you. We are so weak. We are so helpless. And that's why Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Our next breath depends upon the Lord. Notice the place where this took place place, Jericho. Jericho is a city that had been rebuilt in disobedience to God. We've already talked about that. Remember, God had destroyed the place and it was not to be rebuilt, and some of them decided, we're going to rebuild it anyway, and the fellow that headed up the building program lost his own child as a result of it. God killed His child because He did what He did in disobedience. Now, here's the point. They rebuilt the city, but they're suffering for it now. There might be a lot of other things that we don't know and we didn't see. Sin's always a costly proposition. That's the problem. They are without something they've got to have. Notice the people now that's involved in this story. It's initiated, notice, by the sons of the prophets. These are the preacher boys. These are the guys in Bible college, so to speak. And notice that they recognized Elisha is now endued with power from God. I mean, I don't know exactly how they know that, We don't read of him working any miracle or anything like that. But they understood. It might be by divine revelation, but whatever the case, they understand that he is the the heir to the ministry of Elijah. We need to remember that. Although we're not miracle workers, mark this down, folks. We ought to live in such a way that other people can see that we represent the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to be crystal clear to the people that you work with, the people you go to school with. It ought to be crystal clear to your family and to your neighbors. We'll never be able to reach them effectively until they see something of Christ in us. And these men saw something of God in Elijah. And notice what they do. In their first request here, they say, We've got 50 strong men and we want to send them out on a search party for Elijah. I mean, they knew that Elijah had been taken away, but... They don't know where, and so they feel like it's their duty maybe to go out and to look for him. And it's a bit humorous where they say, you know, who knows, the Spirit may have taken him away. Notice verse 16, and cast him upon some stone or upon some mountain or into some valley. And you know, we've got to go find him. And notice what Elisha says. Elisha says no. That was the first response here. No. Now notice these men recognizing that he is God's appointed leader at this time. In other words, they recognize his authority. They're not launching out on their own. They're coming to the proper authority. We ought to always do that. But when they come to him, they don't get the answer they want. I can't tell you how many times people come to me, you know, as their pastor, and say, well, pastor, you know, this is the situation, what should we do? And you tell them what they ought to do, and then they do just the opposite. Now, you see, there's a lot of folks that they really don't want you to tell them what they ought to do. They just want to hear you to hear the complaint, you see. So they come to him, they say, look, we've come up with this idea, we're going to send out a search party, and he says, no, don't go. So what do they do? They decide they're going to go anyway. I mean, they are determined. And so they come back to him again, and we want to go. Now, notice what happens here. This time he says, have at it. Go ahead. Now, this tells me something really important about Elijah. It tells me that although he is a man in authority, he is not a dictator. I've seen pastors leave churches because the church refused to follow their leadership. They would vote on some issue and the pastor was all for it and the church, the majority, was against it. And the pastor got so bent out of shape he just resigned and tried to justify his leaving by saying, well, they wouldn't follow me, I can't do anything there, so I'm just going to leave. A pastor shouldn't be such a big baby for one thing. Now let me tell you, it does hurt. Now, I'll say that. It does hurt. But I mean, that, how stupid is that? That's like a parent saying, well, I've got a teenage son and, and he just won't do anything I say. I, I'm, I'm just going to kick him out in the street. You don't do that. You don't disown your children because they won't listen. You stay there, and you love them, and you work with them. And that's what pastors ought to do. But it's interesting that he says, and listen, he knows their mission is going to fail, and yet he says, go ahead. Now, God has done the same thing on several occasions. you got to remember, they finally said, well, we want a king. We want to be like all of the other nations. And and God, of course, was His will was, you don't need a king. I'm your king. You don't need to be like all the other nations. But finally God says, okay, give them what they want. I had Samuel to anoint Saul to be the king. Boy, did they ever regret that. The Bible says that God granted their request but sent leanness in their soul. Be careful about arguing with God. He just might give in and let you do what you want to do and you will live to regret it. So here they are, they go out on their search, three days, wasted, futile, before they finally come back and say, in essence, well, I guess we should have listened. All the splendid preaching in the world won't help people that refuse to listen to it. They could have saved themselves a lot of time and a lot of energy had they just said, well, we know that God has put you in a position of leadership and we don't understand why you don't want us to go search for Elijah, but, you know, you're the man in charge and we'll abide by that. But they didn't do that. Now, notice they return. Verse number 19. When they get back, they express their need. And they're bringing the problem to the right man, by the way. Give them credit for that. And they're confessing their need. They're not pretending that all is well when it's not. A lot of people do that. You could ask them, well, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, everything's just fine. And they know they're lying through their teeth. So they come to the right man with their problem and present it. They lay it out. We need water. The water is unfit for consumption. Now, notice the prophet now. Our attention is shifted from the people and from the problem over to the prophet himself. And Elisha solved the problem, but it would have been a completely different story had they not confessed the problem. Now, think with me. The problem would have never been solved had they not Confessed the problem, number one, and cooperated with the leader, number two. They followed his instructions and their need was met. In other words, they followed the preacher's advice. It paid off. Now listen, God always honors obedience. Young people, it might be that you have a higher IQ than mom and dad. It might be that you have more education than mom or dad. But don't you ever dishonor your parents. You have a responsibility to honor them and to obey them. And if you do, I guarantee you, God's going to bless you as a result of it. It's really interesting in all of this to notice that Elisha is so very careful to give God the credit because that speaks volumes about his character. He's not trying to take the credit for it. He's giving all of the credit to God. You know, we can't expect God to bless us unless we give Him the glory. Now notice here something really interesting to me, how God is directing Elisha to use certain means to perform the miracle. Look in verse number 20. Notice how this all goes about. He said, bring me a new cruise and put salt therein, and they brought it to him. Now, God is doing something here. Elijah could have said, you fellas, just stand back and I'm going to take over and I'm going to solve this problem. But he didn't do that. God is directing him to get them involved in it. In other words, this is an expression of faith on their part. When they listen to Him, when they obey Him, they're expressing their faith in His leadership, their faith in God. So bring me a cruise of, of salt, he says, and he puts the salt in the water. The water is cured and it's drinkable and things begin to flourish. A lot of times we wonder, why does God do things like He does? We don't understand it. We never will understand it. but understand this: God wants us to be involved in it. Now, we talk about needing 1.9 million dollars. You know God, listen, God could just rain all of that down from heaven. We could go out here, <laughs> we could go out here after the service and walk out on the parking lot and just look around dollar bills floating down from heaven. Amen. God could do that. Does anybody doubt that? I mean, I believe that with all of my heart. If He can send manna down from heaven and quail down from heaven and water out of a rock, then He can rain down money from heaven. No problem with God, but God wants people to be involved. Remember the little lad. Here's the multitude, 5,000. They don't have anything to eat, but there's a lad here. They're in John chapter 6. And the lad has five loaves and two little, uh, uh, five five fishes and two barley loaves. Is that what it was? Five what? Five loaves and two, two little fishes. And they said, what is that among so many? And notice what happens here. They get all of the disciples involved, and the disciples find themselves taking that which the lad gave to the Lord, And they began distributing. Now, the Lord didn't have to do it that way. He got the lad involved. He got the disciples involved. And they set them down out there in order and began to distribute what God provided. God wants to involve us in His work. And if we refuse, we cannot expect God to meet our needs. I believe with all of my heart that if I do what God wants me to do, that God's going to supply my needs. I, I don't have any doubt about that, folks. That's why every time that I've changed churches, I've never inquired what is the salary. I don't care what the salary is. And that doesn't mean I don't like money. I like money as much as anybody. Sure. We all like money, most of the time more than we ought to. Not anything wrong with the money itself. But I've just always believed that if I would do what God wanted me to do, God's going to take care of it. I mean, isn't that what the Bible says? Matthew six thirty three Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Remember the church at Philippi? And I've heard so many people try to claim Philippians 4.19 as their verse, but my God shall supply all to your need according to His riches in glory. You know, And and, and people try to claim, listen, you cannot claim that verse unless you're doing what they did. Uh-huh. And you read the story and you see that they were the ones that had been supportive of His ministry. They are the ones that had contributed so generously To the ministry and to those folks, the promise was given that God shall supply all your needs. You cannot live in disobedience to God and expect God to supply your needs. Often think about the prodigal son and yonder there he is in the pig pen. And you better believe the father loved him with all of his heart. But as long as it was out there in the pig pen, he never got a welfare check from the father. The Father knew what He needed was not a welfare check. He needed to get down so low, suffer so much, hurt so bad, that finally He would come to His senses. And He did. And so, folks, when we disobey God, we can't expect the blessings of God. And that's scary. Now, let me put this all together finally I want you to see the picture Now you know the story but I want you to see the picture And over and over again you you hear me make reference to what Paul said over in Romans chapter number 15 verse 4 here it is I think one of the most important verses in the Bible Because everything in the story we've looked at tonight is for us and here's why I say that for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Think about it. God wants you to have hope tonight. Maybe you're here with a situation, with a problem, and you—I mean, there seems to be no solution whatsoever. And God wants you to know there is hope. This story that we've just talked about tonight is symbolic of our problems. Our problem might be different in nature. It might not have anything to do whatsoever with Jericho. might have nothing to do with water or anything like that. But we all face problems. And God wants us to know there's hope. That's why this story is recorded here. God didn't have to tell us this story. God didn't have to preserve this truth for us. God wanted this recorded in His Word so that here we are thousands of years later reading this and that we might have hope. Now, let me mention three things about this picture. Number one, we all face problems we cannot solve. Life is full of problems. Job said, man this of woman is a few days in full of trouble. Sin, of course, is at the root of all of those problems. Man is a sinful being and, and, and corrupt in his heart, and it's revealed in numerous different ways. And you look at the world and wonder, what's wrong? What's wrong is sin, folks. Sin brought a curse upon this earth and we live in a fallen world. We all wish it was better, but it's not. It's a fallen world. It's the only world we got right now. This is where we gotta live and there are gonna be problems. And if you're looking for a problem-free life, I got news for you. You're going to live your life in sad disappointment. Secondly, Secondly, we see in this picture here that the sin problem is a big problem and of a serious nature. We're talking about a city here. We're talking about thousands of people here that are in need. Sin has created an international crisis, and it goes beyond the physical realm, folks. This is a spiritual problem that we're talking about, And if it's not solved, it will result in utter and total ruin. Have you ever thought about the tribulation period, how awful it is? Jesus said it's a time like no other that's ever been on the earth. It's going to be so bad that they're going to be rationing food. Some people resort to cannibalism, literally eating the flesh of their own children to survive. You say, how could people do that? Because... In those days there will be no natural affection. Parents aren't going to feel any particular attachment to their children. They'll literally eat their own children. What is at the root of all? It's sin, folks. That's what I'm talking about here. Those people that rebuilt Jericho might have thought to themselves, well, it ain't no big deal. I know God doesn't want it rebuilt, but we're going to do it anyway. That's what always gets us in trouble. And then thirdly, our problem can only be solved by trusting God and obeying His Word. i got to tell you folks, there's no other solution. You can have all of your programs, all of your plans, and so on and so forth, but it all boils down to that until we're willing to trust God, until we're willing to obey God, we don't stand a chance in solving our problems. Let me ask you tonight, do you see your need? You say, well, I can't really think of any need in my life. Uh, You're probably in trouble. Do you see your need tonight? Now, don't think about the needs of those people back in Jericho. Don't think about the need of the person sitting next to you tonight. Do you see your need? Number two, are you willing to ask God for help? If you're not willing to ask God for help, you're not ever going to find a solution to your problem. You see, a lot of folks see the need, but they won't go to God with it. Uh, You know, they'll sit back and complain about the problem, but they never really take the problem to God. In other words, here's what happens. They want God to fix the problem, but they don't want to fix their relationship with God. It doesn't work that way. As I said this morning, everything boils down to our relationship with God. Our love for others depends on our, our love for the Lord, you see. So do you see the need? And are you willing to ask God for help? Now, here's the third thing. Asking God for help is one thing. Doing what God says is another. Are you willing to obey God? I I couldn't help it. When I left this morning, I thought to myself, I thought to myself, I just wonder. I mean, one man responded. He responded out of grief, requesting prayer. But I couldn't help but wonder when I left if if maybe nothing in that message had anything to do with anybody in the whole service. Uh, I mean, we covered a lot of different topics this morning. And and surely there is someone that says, yes, indeed, (laughs) that one part really got right down to where I live. And yes, I... God was doing something in my heart and I really felt bad about that and I know that I'm not doing what God wants me to do. So what are you going to do about it? And you can't be neutral, folks. You're either going to obey God or disobey God. Do you see the need? Will you go to God with the problem? Then will you obey God whenever He tells you what to do. That's what it all boils down to. They said, we got a problem. Elisha said, in essence, I've got a God. My God can meet your need. But you got to do what I tell you to do. And go get a cruise and put some salt in it. And they did. You see, folks, if we're not going to listen to God, we don't stand a chance. But if we'll listen to God, if we will obey God, if we will trust God, we'll never have a problem He can't solve. Never have a need He can't Meet. He's that kind of a God. Amen? He's able to do exceeding, abundant, above all that we could ever ask or even think. Remember, He wants you To have hope. But you've got to trust Him. You've got to obey Him. Let's stand together. Father, as we think back on this ancient story tonight, and we reflect on Your great power, and as we think about Your concern for those people back then, it reminds us, Lord, that You really do care about people. And there's nobody here tonight that You don't care about. Nobody here tonight that you don't love. There's nobody here tonight with a problem that's so bad, but what you can't solve it. Every success, Lord, is due to you, every failure to us. So tonight, help us, Lord, to be honest about ourselves. Help us to see the need. Help us to ask for help. And help us to do what you tell us to do. For some unsaved folks here tonight, maybe that might mean they would put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and trust His shed blood for the forgiveness of their sins. For some wayward Christian tonight, it would mean that they would repent of their sins and start obeying and following as you guide them through your Word. So, Lord, may you be glorified in what's said and done here this evening. May we respond in a way that would please you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. As we stand, as we sing, if God's dealing with your heart, would you come just now? Come on.